All right, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Father, help me this morning. I need Your grace to unpack, to teach, to apply accurately this famous passage. Cause us to hear with hungry hearts this glorious truth the Gospel. Work on our hearts. Break us where we need to be broken. Cause us to be overcome by joy because of it. To the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this as you know, is again, like John 3.16, one of the most well-known portions of all the Bible. In this passage of Ephesians 2, 8-10, it is about grace. It's about the grace of God saving us sinners. It's about grace alone apart from any obedience, any works that any of us do, but grace alone in order to be saved. This text drives home again the fact that we cannot save ourselves by anything that we do. It reiterates that our salvation is not a joint effort between God and us. God does His part, then we do our part, and together we have salvation. That's not the grace of the Gospel. Grace is a very precious biblical word. And that word in the Bible is filled with the meaning that the Scriptures give to it. I say it that way because sadly the word grace has been perverted and made into something that's not by many professing Christians. About two decades ago, there were a number of us in here who know people very personally, who were affected, who were messed up by 
a so-called doctrine of grace that infiltrated the South Bay area. That essentially teaches people that if you ask Jesus to come into your heart, okay, you meant it, remember back then? Okay, you were sincere, right? You weren't faking. Then, you're under grace, meaning even if you abandon the Scriptures, even if you abandon Jesus, even if you abandon His local church, even if you live now for years and decades in a sexual relationship outside of the covenant of marriage, even if you live as a drug addict or a drunkard, even if you live as a mean-spirited, slandering backbiter for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, you're still saved because you asked Jesus to come into your heart. You're under grace. Even though there is never a pattern of good works, of love for Christ in your life. This passage this morning is directed not only in the first century, but very, very sharply at the present day evangelical church. This is a passage that safeguards the gospel of grace from the doctrines of demons, promoting antinomianism. Okay, what's that? The word law, God gives laws like obey me, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Those are laws. The Greek word for law is namos. You can hear anti comes from Greek against or without. Anti or without law. Like I just laid out, grace means there's no law. Christians don't live under any moral codes, period. And if they never even have a life that matches a moral code that's in the Bible, they're saved. Anyway, it's called historically antinomianism. This idea that you can live a lawless life without any fruits of holiness or sanctification happening in your life. But you're saved by grace. And all of this is promoted in the name of grace. But in this passage, Paul makes it clear. He makes it clear that you better believe we are saved by grace through trusting or faith alone. Period. We're not saved by any works that we do. We are not saved by any holiness that we perform in order to get this grace. But it is by grace alone. Through faith alone. But then, he says in verse 10, (laughs) he makes it clear that those who would interpret that grace to mean those persons who come to faith in the Gospel are saved by grace can therefore live and walk in darkness unrepentedly through their lives is a lie. 
It's not gospel. You cannot, Paul is letting us know, say, I am under grace, the grace of the cross of Jesus. Therefore, because I asked Him to come into my heart, I'm going to heaven no matter how I live. No matter how I love God or don't love God. No matter how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ or don't love my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Paul preaching the Gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, says there are people who mock me and say then let us just sin all the more. He says, let their condemnation come because it is just. Paul says, the implications of the Gospel of God's grace saving you alone without your help never gives room for therefore those persons live a lawless life. So what Paul shows us in our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10 to is that the grace that saves at its core is a heart. The grace changes the heart from spiritual death to spiritual life of loving, enjoying God in Jesus Christ. And therefore, that person walks a life of hating their remaining sin. A life of repenting and pursuing holiness. And then Paul says, oh yeah, how they walk, how they obey, those works, not only was your adoption, being born again, predestined, but those works that you see in your wake that He is working through you were also prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So I could close, but let's just go see if this ain't so. So if you're there in Ephesians 2, let's remember the larger context now as we come to verse 8. It's not in a vacuum. Okay? He has already unfolded in verses 1-7 through of Ephesians 2 as He was explaining God's exceedingly great power working for those of us who are in Christ, who are saved, who believed. And then He says, this is how it was. All of us were born as sinners. We were born spiritually dead to God. We had zero inclination to trust Him, to believe in Him, to like Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him. We were all following after the desires of our sinful nature alone. And thus we were all headed to hell. We were, as he said, by our very nature, inherited from Adam, children of wrath. And then verse 4, those two words, but God. But God came uninvited and raised us spiritually 
from the dead. He made us alive through new birth. And that's why we believe. Okay, that's what he has said. And that leads into verses 8 to 10, which are an explanation of what he has just said. That's why it begins with the word for. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And now remember in verses 1 to 7, as Paul was unfolding the miracle of God's sovereign grace in raising us from the dead, he, he, he just had this outburst that he couldn't wait. In verse 5, by grace you have been saved. So now in verse 8, he unfolds that. By grace you've been saved through faith. And he goes on. Now by saved, what does that mean here? I think in the context, it's clear. You are saved from. You are rescued from the future judgment that is coming. He called it God's Wrath, where all children of wrath or divine justice that every one of us sinners deserves. Paul said it this way in Romans 5 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. By Him, by Christ, from the wrath of God. So that's, what do you save? What do you mean saved or rescued or delivered from God's wrath? But in the context, we're also saved unto something. Look at the verse right before verse 8. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're saved from what we deserved and we're saved positively to enjoy the manifold glory of God which is infinite and eternal and omnipotent. He is bringing sinners in to that experience of His glory through Jesus Christ. So how are we saved? He answers the question by grace. Through faith. Okay. By grace. What grace? Well, in the context, it's the grace He has been unfolding. The grace that raised us from the dead spiritually, that made us alive to God. As He began in verse 4 when He said, But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So He says, you're saved. You're delivered from wrath. Unto God. You're united with Jesus, His Son. You are a believer. How did it happen? By grace. Through faith. The grace of God's raising us from the dead and producing in us faith. Faith to be justified. Forgiven of our sins. Have Jesus' righteousness put to our account. So just I want you to look at the context again. Look at your Bible. Look back at chapter 1. Because this is, if you're a believer, this is you. As much as it was to the believers in Asia Minor in the first century. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, In him, in Christ, also, when you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Okay, the gospel message came to you. You heard it. And then he says, and believed in Him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How in the world did that happen? Because after that, in chapter 2, 1-7, particularly chapter 2, verses 1-3, to Paul goes on to say, that's an impossibility. For you to believe this message and be saved is impossible naturally. By your very nature, it would never happen. You were children of wrath. You were going only one way. And so, as much as the Gospel comes to you being raised in a church... Or an evangelist comes. You have one response naturally. Foolishness. Or stupid. It's a stumbling block. It doesn't fit the way I think things ought to be. You cannot respond with a heart called faith that gets you justified. He lays that out in verses 1-3. to of chapter 2. But he says, you responded. You believed. How come? Because of the but God acted. And that's what Paul calls grace in this context. By grace, you've been saved. That grace, it's all over the New Testament. Remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 to 24. We go throughout the empire, town to town, city to city, village to village, and we preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, nothing. It's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, no response positively. It's foolishness. That's how they respond. And no one's saved. But, this is where the but God comes in, to those who are called. Now that's a call of God's grace. That's God's grace causing to happen what He calls for. Faith. 
That's how Luke traveled with Paul for years. He's there in Philippi. And when he tells the story, when they go outside of town, down by the river, they find these Jewish women, and he says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart in order that she would pay attention to what Paul was teaching. She was saved. She was baptized. If you're a Christian, you can think about your own life. How'd that happen? For me, back in 1981, a child of wrath like the rest of mankind, all of a sudden, there was this insatiable desire to read the Bible that lay in the house for all those years. And I did. And my eyes were opened. And I believed. I was changed. I was new. It took me a long time to figure out what happened to me. But it was God's grace. How did you get saved? By grace through faith. The underlying foundation of our salvation is the grace of God. The means of appropriating the forgiveness of sins and of justification before God. What's the means of that? It's called faith. That's how Paul teaches it. We are justified by the means of faith. So what Paul is saying in verse 8, he's just repeating what he said in verses 1-7 to concisely and clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You've been raised from the dead that produced the faith you find yourself saved. And in case we missed it, Paul goes on to interpret salvation by grace through faith Clearly. So he says, let me say it again in different words. And this is not your own doing. What? Being saved by grace through faith. I'm going to show that in a second. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of of works, so that no one may boast. So he says, literally, this is not from you. Now, what does the word this refer to in the context? That's a huge question. When he says, this is not from you or from your own doing, does it refer to the grace of the Gospel message? Jesus did the work. He died. The message comes. That's the grace. And it comes to you, and that's not from you. And then, what is from you is the faith that you mixed with the grace and thus are saved. 
50% God, His grace of Christ doing the work and the message coming. And now your turn, put your 50% in, which makes 100% of the whole called salvation. Is that what He's saying? Well, first, in the larger context, He would be contradicting what He had just said. It doesn't make any sense that he's saying that here. Now, just within the verse itself, when he says, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God. The this and the it refer to the whole sentence that just came before. What I mean is this. When you get a pronoun, like the demonstrative pronoun, this is only going to take about 60 seconds. When you have a pronoun in any language, Greek or English, okay, like he, she, it, they, or this, or that, okay, you ask the question, what is its antecedent? Meaning, which Noun that came before it, is it referring back to? Bill hit a streaming line drive, and then he, oh, there's he, there's a pronoun, he, he ran around the bases like lightning. Well, what's the antecedent of he? Tell me. Oh my gosh. This is like second grade. No one was listening. Bill hit a line drive. Then he, Ran around the bases. What does the he refer back to? Goodness. Okay. Sorry, I did not expect that. I got caught off guard. Okay. So that's that's all you do it all the time. You're always looking for antecedents, even though you never use that term. If it's written well, what's the antecedent of this? Well, in the Greek there are three genders. There's masculine, there's feminine, and there's neuter. And the pronoun must agree with its antecedent in gender and in number. Number is singular or plural. Okay. The previous sentence, for by grace, okay, you have been saved, saves the verb, through faith. So you got grace and you got faith, these two nouns. Both of those nouns are in the feminine gender. Then when he says, and this, it's not feminine. It's in the neuter gender. There's nothing neuter prior to it. What Paul is doing is it's his way of saying that whole sentence. By grace, you have been saved through faith. That whole thing is not your own doing. It is a gift. Of God. That's what he's saying. It refers to the salvation that comes by grace and the faith. It's all a gift of God. See, that any of us are Christians, or the way Paul says it in 1 to 7, verses 1 to 7, that God came. And He raised us spiritually from the dead. And He implanted the Holy Spirit 
within us and caused us to taste and to see that the Gospel of Jesus is good. And thus we believe all of that, Paul is saying, is a gift from God. None of it originated from you. From your natural state. But I believed. Yep. And the word faith is the noun. Believe is the verb of the same. Believing is an action. And that is something that you do. But Paul is saying, that doing that you do, called believing, did not originate from you. That's what he's saying. And you know what? If that's true, then you could never boast. You could never boast about your intellect. Look at all the world religions and there's only one true one and I figured it out. And that guy didn't. My brother or my sister or my parent or my friend, they didn't. I must be somehow innately, naturally better, smarter. You can't do that if you understand this. Verse 8. Or I, I must be when it comes to moral character better, because there's only one God and there's only one way of salvation, and I believed in Jesus. You didn't. You can never boast. See, to boast in the sense of I have something of pride within me, look at me, would be like you being on a car lot just to torment yourself because you can't afford a brand new car. And someone walks up to you and hands you $33,000 cash. Just enough to pay for that vehicle you're looking at. Now, you're going to pay it. You're not going to get the card that you take that money and you put it down. But that's different than if you drive away now and boast about how hard you worked to earn all that money. How you had delayed gratification by not going to restaurants for years or spending on all kinds of frivolous stuff. But put the money away. you got something to boast about. Look at you. You saved and now you got your prize. That would be stupid for this person. Yes! He believed. I mean, so, I mean he paid the money, but the money did not originate from Him. It was a gift. There is no room for boasting. Now notice, that's Paul's point. Look at the purpose clause. The word, so that, so that, or in order that, no one may boast. Every believer is meant to feel that. 
We are meant to see the height and the depth of the Father's saving love for us. So feel it. If spiritually dead, wrath-deserving sinners got saved by God's grace in Jesus in such a way that would allow them to accurately take some credit and thus brag to some degree, then God's glory would be diminished. And if you understand the God of the Bible, the way He has revealed Himself, He will never let that happen. And that's why Paul is telling us God's goal in saving the elect this way is so that no human being will ever be able to accurately say, hey, look at me but only joyfully say in wonder, look at my Father. Look at my Savior. You see, for the Apostle Paul, this theology of no boasting, it's not peripheral in his thinking. It is. It's huge in his writing. The, the whole flow of what we have seen so far in Ephesians chapter 1 all the way through half of Ephesians 2 has been God chose you. He has had predestined you. And thus, He raised you spiritually from the dead to new life in Christ by new birth, by imparting faith to you so that no one will boast. This is his crescendo. Or I want you to turn for a minute and listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to read a larger context. So hang on, pay attention to the words that he's writing. Starting in the middle of verse 23, Paul writes, We. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called. That's the grace of God there. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ to them is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, verse starting 27. He goes on, God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, in order to bring to nothing things that are. And here He comes. Why? so that no human being might boast 
in the presence of God. And because of Him, got to get this, this is the same thing Paul said in Ephesians 2, it's not of you, God's grace through faith saving you. None of it originates from you. And he says here, and because of Him, not you, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so Paul tells us in our text, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this whole thing is not of you. It is the gift of God. It's not of any works that you do so that no one may boast. Oh, if we just could hear this more and more daily. I mean, really in our relationship with God and fighting our sin. Let the joy just rise. Salvation is by grace alone. There is no work, no obedience, no improvement morally that you could ever do in order to get saved. You can. Okay then. Then Joe, why did you start off this sermon by coming against the doctrine that says, I accepted Jesus into my heart and therefore I'm going to heaven no matter what. No matter how I live. I'm saved by grace. Not by works. Not by good works. So therefore, Jesus, I confess Him. He's my Savior. Even if I don't bear any fruit of good works for the rest of my life, I know I'm going to heaven because that's the Gospel. Even if I continue to live in habitual, unrepentant disobedience to God's clear moral commands in the New Testament, I am saved. Why are you so against that, Joe? Why are you so against people that would declare and or live when it comes to heaven or hell, that has nothing to do with how professing Christians obey God or not. Because it's all grace, brother. I'm under grace. And grace has nothing to do with our good works. Why am I angry at such a teaching that says Christians, well, they shouldn't do this. 
I mean, we should do better, but it is possible that there are many Christians who are saved even though they live and walk in darkness. Living continuous sinful lives of hoarding their money or practicing sexual immorality or being mean-spirited, manipulative, slandering deacons or elders or pastors or church members. But they're saved. They say so. They'll affirm every basic Christian statement of the grace of Jesus. So why am I against it? Because Paul will not allow that perversion of grace to stand. You know, I've got to tell you, some, <laughs> I remember years ago when in this area when that doctrine of grace was going around and, and one of uh, my close friends was intimately involved in it. And then I know others in this church have friends involved in it. And I hated it when they say, oh, they're just preaching that grace. Oh, don't say that. Don't let them have the biblical word. It is a perversion of grace. Grace is precious. I believe in grace. I believe in unconditional grace. I hope you heard it again and again and again like this morning. But in this very passage, Paul goes on to say why it's true that those who are saved by grace, those who have been spiritually raised from the dead and united to Christ, cannot live the pathway of unbelievers anymore. But instead, Christians walk in the light not in the darkness. The light of good works of obedience. Verse 10, let's read it. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you follow Paul in Ephesians from the beginning, and you believe him when he says, you Christians who love Jesus, yes, he changed my life. And he says, this is what happened. Before God created the universe, he chose you. He predestined that you would be adopted. Okay, I believe, look at that. That's why that's happened. Oh, by the way, He's also predestined or prepared beforehand actual sanctification or good works in your life. They cannot not any more than the elect cannot be saved. So he starts off with the word for, which means Paul's clarifying the positive 
of inevitable good works for those who are saved by grace. I think he feels the need, I've got to make sure I do that right here, because he does it all over his writings, but precisely because he made it crystal clear that there are no good works that anybody could do in order to get saved. And so, he's going to clarify, but once you're saved, there are inevitable good works that grace, through faith, produces. He says, now that you see your salvation gives you no room for boasting. It is totally of God and from Him and not from you. Now, out of that comes fruit. Out of that comes the evidence of the new desires of the new spiritual life that God has given to you. It is the fruit or the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you that propels you to walk by the Spirit, producing love toward other persons by causing you in your life to resist and to battle and to fight your innate, sinful, selfish inclinations. Paul is showing us here in verse 10 that Christianity is not some club that a person can join by raising their right hand and repeating after me and meet it in your heart, Jesus, please come into my heart. Okay, you're in. You're saved. You never can go to hell because that's how you get into the club. No, he's saying Salvation is a miracle. It's being raised from spiritual death to the spiritual life of loving God. Never perfectly down here. We're sinners. Paul makes this clear again and again. But there is evidence on the tree. That's why he uses the word you're created in Christ. It's like the word he uses in 2 Corinthians. You're a new creation. It's not a club. It's a miracle. You're changed. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We're saved by grace. That is, we are New creations. So then look at your life and watch the evidence. The evidence will be there. Follow the flow of your new desires. Those are the evidences that you are saved by grace through faith. Well, I can't see desires. Okay, the way you see unseen desires is by the choices it makes or they make. These good works, as he puts it here, are the fruit of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within you 
That's what he means by he's united you in heavenly places, a spiritual realm. It's another dimension. You're really united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's salvation. See, that's why Jesus said, and he meant it in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, and this is speaking to Jesus now, Jesus, your Lord, Lord, not every one of those will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many people will say to me, the Lord Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And cast out demons in Your name? And do mighty works in your name, in the name of Jesus? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of antinomianism. You workers of lawlessness. Or Paul in Galatians, when he's talking about the fruit of salvation by grace through faith, he writes this in chapter 5 of Galatians. But I say walk, that means live your life, by the Holy Spirit, and you will not be gratifying the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, they are against the work of the Spirit in you. And the desires of the Spirit in you are against your natural flesh which is still with you. These are opposed to each other in order to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then he makes a stunning statement. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, church, as I warned you before when I was with you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes to the church, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither 
the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the Gospel of grace and its fruits that Paul preaches. And so what he's doing here in Ephesians 2 is Paul's giving us this the big picture of the Christian life. Saying all born again persons, they have been made new creations in Christ in order to live and to do life in a certain way and not in other ways. That's what flows out of the miracle of God the Holy Spirit dwelling in the saved. Those who are born again, those who are united to Christ, that's why they live by faith, trusting in God's promises. That's what he's saying. And don't flip them around. Because Paul is clear. Don't ever say, okay then, well, what I'm going to really do is be really good morally in order to get saved. It doesn't work. It's, it's, it's legalism. It's dirty. It's sinful. And it's a doctrine of demons also. Don't flip it around. But don't erase verse 10 either. The fruit. You see, the doctrine of bogus grace that comes again and again and again and again throughout the centuries and it's alive today in quote-unquote American evangelicalism, the doctrine of bogus, unbiblical grace is a demonic deception. It is a lie. It is a deception to say, I accepted Jesus into my heart, so therefore, I'm going to heaven no matter how I live my life. No matter whether I ever love God or not. Or ever love my neighbor or not. Let me just give a mathematical equation of this deadly doctrine. It goes like this. Grace and faith equal justification. That, that means essentially your sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness to you. That's it. I'm saved. Grace and faith then the equal sign justification. And after justification, there's an equal sign, and what it equals is, well, nothing necessarily. It should. It ought to. 
But it doesn't have to. It's a doctrine of demons. Many of you might not know, but this is why there's language within evangelicalism called discipleship, meaning in this sense. There are those who have taught. There are some, because they came down the altar and asked Jesus into their heart, and we know they're saved by grace through faith alone, period. So they're all Christians. Now, it's just that some went on to make Jesus their Lord, and others did not. So what we got to do, we kind of got them into kind of like church, or got another person to sign another card, but now we got to get them discipled. And work on that, which is stage two Christianity. That language is around only because of this false doctrine. You see, the biblical teaching is grace, which produces faith, equals justification. And for all who are justified, there's an equal sign, and out of that is sanctification. To one degree or another, It's working and it's happening in them. And if there is no fruit on the tree, there is no tree that's true. There's no fruit, there's no root. If you want a footnote, my authority is Jesus. So, as I close in, okay, it's an intense sermon. What do we do in light of it? Here's my three suggestions as I close. What, what this text ought to bring to us is this. First, in our lives as Christians, every day, look back to the truth of divine election. Look back to Him thus calling you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you say, yes, I love Christ. And then, with that every day, kindle a flame that faith with the Word of God in prayer. Secondly, along with it, these just go clearly together. Secondly, with that, every day, ask yourself the question, shall I continue in sin because I'm under grace? And answer it with Paul's answer in Romans 6, verse 2. By no means. Absolutely not. How can I, who died to sin in Christ my Savior, still habitually walk in it unabated? So say no. Or, you quote to yourself, for I am His workmanship, I have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, not bad works, which God, you prepared beforehand. May I find myself walking in them today. So look back and answer, no, I shall not continue in sin. And thirdly, with those press in the loving God and trusting His Word, And from that heart of faith then, you take what you have. We all got three things. We have time. We have money. 
and we have giftings. And you take it, and you go to the bank every day, and you lay up treasures in heaven, begging for God's continued grace and mercy to be working in you. You do it by recognizing, I feel like sinning. I don't feel like loving. Christians always feel this on a continual basis. And so you take that prayerfully before the Word and say, God, change that. And that's the process of sanctification happening. So that again today, I can love my neighbor as I care for myself. And as you fly through on that boat in the lake of your life with those three things every day in the wakes, you will see good works that He has prepared for me to walk in. Let's come on up. Let's pray. Father, You are good and precious and wonderful. I pray, Father, that nothing that I have spoken be misconstrued become harmful, but may Your light shine upon each and every one of us to revel in Your grace and to love Your work of sanctification and pursuit of holiness and good works to the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ.